Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update on this Shushan Purim morning here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Nachum. Sounds like you've gotten over whatever uh, whatever you were uh, enjoying on Purim Day. Sounds like you're ready for a comprehensive, uh, level-headed discussion this morning. Well, level-headed, I'm not sure, but uh, <laughs> it, it, uh, we had a wonderful Suda, Purim's message, and people have to remember that if you don't think of the contemporary significance, you, know, you haven't fulfilled the mitzvah of the Kriya Megillah, the reading of the Megillah, to understand what it means for us today. And uh, so... And I had to work last night, so I guess the I, I sober up quickly. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess so. Uh, I guess the message is obvious when you say reference to modern day, reference to how the Megillah relates to 2016. And I bet we'll get to some things in today's discussion that will jog everyone's memory if they don't remember why the Megillah is uh, important to remember in right. 2016. Before we get to a Purim and this time of year, uh, tell us about Pesach and your plans for the upcoming. Holiday Pesach five seven seven six. Well, Mitzvahem, we will be at the Rosen Hotel in Orlando with uh, Majestic. Really looking forward to it now. <laughs> to, uh, to be in the sunshine and then wonderful company, wonderful speakers, wonderful program. So we are really looking forward to it. Well, you get to relax over Pesach. It sounds like. I work a little bit, but uh, <laughs> not, not, not that much. It's, it's, there's a lot of chlamoid this year. That's right. So, Great to be in yeah, a place like sounds, Orlando. Like sounds a, like you're out of access. Sounds like you're anxious to get down there already and start relaxing. I'm ready for Pesach. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unlike most people out there, you're, you're one of the exceptions. <laughs> uh, the weekly update, and in this case, it's been a couple of weeks since we've spoken. There's a lot to talk about, that's for sure. Um, let's start with, I mean, we'll, we'll get to Brussels, obviously, and a lot of other things that have happened over this past week. Let's start with Istanbul. Is it, in fact, possible? Is it confirmed? What could you tell us about whether the um, uh, the suicide bomber in Istanbul was, in fact, targeting Israelis specifically? It is apparent that he stalked the Israelis from the hotel where they were staying, followed them, whether he knew that they were there or he encountered them as he was walking uh, heard the Hebrew, heard them talking. It was, it was a group of 14, so it was a little hard to miss them. And uh, 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 and they were walking on on the street, and he did explode it so that it would hit them. It hit it hit also killed also an Iranian uh, visitor. Uh, they went to outside a restaurant which was known to be frequented by Israelis. As you know, a, a tremendous number of Israelis visit. Turkey. The number of flights every day between Israel and Turkey is astronomical, wow. uh, and Turkish airline has become a major uh, way for people to go to Israel because it's, uh, it's more reasonable, and they stop over briefly in, uh, in uh, Istanbul and go on to Israel. Uh, but Israelis uh, travel to Turkey, and as you know, tourism generally has fallen off so much with the absence of the Russian travelers. About four and a half million stopped coming which has put the whole industry in, in a dizzy array of uh, crises, um, including 1,300 hotels that are for sale on the Asian and Mediterranean coasts alone. So the Israelis uh, stood out, and now the speculation is that he followed him and then blew himself up outside the restaurant. Unbelievable. Um, it, it, does, does this slow down Israeli tourism? I know it's early, too early to say, but some of us are shocked and surprised by the uh, you know the continuous 
movement between Israel and Turkey, especially in light of certain things over the last couple of years we've discussed a million times on this show. Uh, is, well, I uh, think this will. I think this. Uh, the government put out a warning. It had, there have been previous warnings, but I think this one was much stronger about travel to Turkey. And the expectation is that you're going to see more of these bombings coming from two sources, ISIS and from PKK, uh, who, both of them have been alleged to have carried out the attacks before. This one appears to be ISIS-related. And the, um, stability, the situation in Turkey remains questionable and the stability questionable. So I think, yes, I do think that uh, tourism will be affected. And many people plan for Passover travel. Israelis, as you know, travel in greater proportion perhaps than any other people. About yeah. a quarter of the country is out over the course of the summer and uh, for Pesach and other holiday periods as well. So it's a big issue. It, 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 so many people travel, and Turkey is so reasonable, both in terms of cost of getting there and staying there, that many had planned trips there. Yeah, that's uh, it's something, and I, it just, it, well... All right, then we move to Brussels. 34 killed, 187 wounded in this uh, in the airport attack this week. Uh, ISIS did claim responsibility, right? ISIS is claiming responsibility, and the people who were involved. Uh, it, it's clear that Belgium has become a hub for the Islamic uh, State terrorists, and uh, they had more people per capita than any other country of uh, people going to Syria. You know, there's this area, Malenbeek, which, which our listeners uh, may have heard of and certainly have read about over the months. This has become a district which is a, a breeding ground for these terrorists. The police hardly go there. These are one of those no-go zones like you have in France. We've talked about it before. But this area, he hid out there, the terrorists who was known to people, and they hid him there for for several weeks at least. Um, known terrorists have, have are are still in the area. That's why the police keep carrying out these raids. And it's estimated that that um, there are about four to six hundred trained fighters from Syria who who are pl- been trained for European attacks. If you remember, we talked about this that there was a camp in Raqqa right. in Syria where they trained people not for terrorism, not to fight. Uh, in Syria, but for terrorism in Europe and the United States, terrorism abroad. And you have uh, the the evidence of this now being manifest when the guy who carried out, the ringleader for the Paris attack who was caught, he said he came with a group of 90 fighters. And the the some of them are Muslim uh, origin, some are Muslim converts. Um, but they, they seek out French-speaking people as the leaders for these groups, both those who can integrate more easily and those who could speak the language most naturally so that they can uh, operate more freely. And the goal is to is not killing as many people as possible, but getting as many operations as possible to spread as much terror and fear. And there were very precise warnings this time, both about the airport and about even the subway now we learned about. Right. And they don't share the list between countries. They don't share lists about suspects, Germany, France, Belgium, all the others. They they um, don't talk about when they move across uh, borders. As we know, there were warnings about some of these guys. Turkey said they sent a warning about him, and the um, and European Muslims generally do not report what they know. Uh, in, some here in America do, in cooperation with the police and closer coordination, so that they've been able to prevent some some of the events there. That's not true, and many of those who've been engaged in these attacks have long criminal records as well. So it's 
you know, it's a very serious long-term threat. The, the numbers are, are of these guys is, is uh, very large, of those who are available to carry out the, these attacks. And, uh, you know, Europe has got to begin to, to really work together to do better on border control, to, to, to take preventative action, to prevent infiltration. It's very hard. You have a very porous border, as you know. They can get in at one place in Europe and travel to others without uh, visas. Uh, I think that we have to hit the funding sources. We have to really go after every aspect of the infrastructure of terrorism. It's a quandary, isn't it, that um, we as a Jewish community, with our history, always with the plea for open borders for obvious reasons, now have to take a position that uh, is just the opposite of that? Well, we have to, to look for intelligent uh, approaches to the problem. It's, as Mrs. Merkel this week made clear, Chancellor Merkel, that uh, the policy that she adopted of, of bringing in a million and sort of open borders uh, is evoking a tremendous negative response. And obviously there are consequences also that people have seen already, and every, people are demanding uh, a change, and it feeds then those who take a more extreme position in this regard, extreme right parties or others, um, but the fear is not an irrational fear, and, and the way to deal with it is to set up a system that is able to to uh, detect those who are legitimate refugees. I mean, look how many Christians and, and Yazidis and others who are running true persecution, and they're not getting in because the numbers are limited, and they're stuck in sometimes in in, in this uh, limbo. Uh, so there has to be a way to detect who who are legitimate. Uh, refugees and who are not, who are economic refugees, who are people seeking to exploit uh, the borders. And everybody acknowledges that within the um, immigration are a number of terrorists. And the question is, what level of, of tolerance do you have for it? Well, I think it has to be very low. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, it's a big discussion worldwide, including uh, in our presidential uh, race right now, which we'll get to in a few minutes. Uh, tell us what happened in Yemen this week. Uh, Israel it seems, has rescued more Jews from Yemen and brought them to Israel. Well, as you know, this is an ongoing issue. 51,000-plus Jews came in 1949, 1950. Um, there are about 50 Jews remaining now. The um, About 200 have come out in recent years. It is not because uh, they couldn't get out. It is because they, they don't want to leave. And the 50 who remain opted not to go. The... Um, this group of 17 uh, came out, um, and they came from two places, including from Sana, and they brought with them an 800-year-old Sefer Torah, which has caused the backlash in Yemen because it was highly publicized, and it was a picture of a meeting with the prime minister and others. And uh, the, one of the Jews was arrested in Yemen, and another uh, person at the airport, we understand, the Muslim, was arrested, accused of complicity, of that these issues can be resolved. Um, and uh, quickly, and that the person will be released. Uh, so this is sort of the end of uh, coming to the end of this chapter of, of the age-old community. Well, how many are left today, then? About 50. That are, that are left after this? They week. live in a compound near the American embassy in Sana, in the capital, which, as you know, is under Houthi control. So, I mean, the obvious question, of course, wouldn't it have been a better idea to just bring everybody out this week? No, they won't leave. Oh, they refuse to leave? They refuse to leave. Wow. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope.
Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM Dial Broadcasting Live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmnam.org. All right, uh, earlier in the week was the APAC conference, as you know. Uh, people around the world, I'm sure, and certainly here in the United States, watched with intrigue as the presidential candidates addressed the crowd. Um, I mean, as a general overview, Malcolm, um, nothing unexpected happened in terms of what was said, and, and certainly for anybody who was expecting, I don't know, any type of major backlash in terms of, you know, I don't know, violent behavior or, or terrible physical demonstrations, that didn't happen either. I think the most shocking thing was how leadership from APAC went ahead and apologized for some of Donald Trump's statements. Did you find that surprising? Look, I think that first uh, we have to acknowledge what an amazing event was that 18,000 people came at considerable expense, 4,000 college students at a time when everybody's saying that students are uh, uninterested, and uh, many hundreds of high school students, uh, people, whole congregations came, um, many, many hundreds and hundreds of rabbis were there, but more importantly, there were hundreds of five or six hundred blacks, uh, hundreds of Hispanics, people of every background. Uh, you could see there were thousands of, of non-Jewish participants. I think that that is an amazing statement. And at a time when people said after the Iran deba- uh, debate and the vote that the you know, that APAC was defeated, APAC was uh, broken, and quite the opposite was true. It's clear that uh, it remained strong, the pro-Israel community remained strong, the the advocacy for Israel and for the the agenda, uh, including on the on Iran, is very strong, and we saw it in the reaction of people to the various candidates who came up, everybody but Bernie Sanders of the active candidates was there. Uh, and he opted not to, but he gave a speech, which was pretty disturbing um, in Utah, wherever he was campaigning. So the, I think overall the, it was a, a remarkable demonstration of support. And it certainly was noted by every speaker that when you're in an arena like that and this tremendous outpouring uh, of support, it was very charged atmosphere. People waited an hour in line to get into the arena sometimes. And everything was done in good spirit, and uh, as you said, the, a crowd like that without any incidents. With the, uh, there were a couple minor protests uh, during the course of the at the different times. People who sought to disrupt and some demonstrators outside. Correct, and I agree with everything you've said. Uh, did you find it unusual that leadership of APAC has to? Oh, yeah. So what happened when uh, Mr. Trump uh, spoke? He had a prepared text, and that was the news for many people that it's the first time that he actually had a, you know, read it off a teleprompter, had a, uh, a prepared speech on foreign policy. Uh, but at one point, he said something uh, about this being the last year of uh, the Obama administration, and then um, said yay. Afterwards, and the audience reacted strongly, and there were many people who were offended by it. Uh, especially some of the non-Jewish participants and others. And so the leadership of APAC uh, decided to make a statement saying that, that this is not that they, that the whole point was, uh, was coming together was the theme and that this was disruptive. So it was a very unusual, an unusual thing to do uh, and doing it in such a, a prominent way. And there were people who were critical, people who supported it. Many people felt it was uh, they had to do something and 
that's how they chose to address it. It's interesting because, I mean, generally, um, you know, an APAC crowd, I would guess, would have to be described as majority against the Iran deal, right? I would guess. Right. Majority against the Iran deal. Majority in this case means over 9,000 people, as you know. Uh, majority against the Iran deal and likely uh, not happy with President Obama's foreign policy, especially in light of that deal. Uh, to whatever degree they're, 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 you know, unhappy with it, but, uh, but likely unhappy with it. And at the same time, I think, and tell me, it, I'm, I really want you to tell me if I'm right or wrong on this, especially because there are, you know, there are so many more Jewish Republicans probably at the APAC conference than there have been in the past. I would still think, nonetheless, it's a relatively Democratic Party gathering. Now, most of the people in that room right. are, so it must be a really difficult, um, a struggle for a lot of people who are staunch Democrats and at the same time find themselves not able to defend the actions, especially foreign policy-wise, of President Obama. I think the assumptions are right that it's probably a majority Democratic audience and the Democratic candidates. Hillary got a very strong response. Biden got a strong response when he came. He spoke Sunday night. So it, it, I don't know if it's so much partisanship. I don't know whether this was just, uh, you know, an instinctive reaction or something, or not, not something people thought about. But, you know, they were charged up anyway, and it doesn't take much in an arena to create a, a big response. And even if it's only a small portion of the people, it does resonate very strongly. Um, so I think you're right. It is surprising given the nature of the what one assumed the audience's predilections would be. If not for the Iran deal, they would have had a lot less patience collectively for Donald Trump than they did, right? Likely. Yeah, and if you heard, there were people who expressed various points of view on it, on the candidacy, but, you know, it would be probably no different than what you would hear generally. Uh, look, I don't, want to put you, I don't want to put you on the spot, and I don't think publicly you should even uh, offer any type of personal opinion. I think most people realize at this point I'm thoroughly disappointed in both major candidates, or the ones at least that are leading for their respective parties. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, e- even though I'm not pressing you for a personal opinion, it's got to scare you, and maybe that's the wrong word, concern you, I don't want to say frightened, but concern you somewhat, that, the, that there, there seems to be, even uh, that there seems to be with both leaders of their p- respective parties in this presidential campaign, some confusion about their foreign policy. It, we, we, we don't seem to be getting a straight answer from either of them about their attitude toward Israel and how they view things going forward, especially in the Middle East. Am I right about that, or am I, uh, or is it just paranoia that's <laughs> leading me to believe it? Well, paranoia would be a normal answer, for, but that's a given condition. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not unusual. Look, I think that that in this case, you saw they had well thought out uh, specific uh, speeches on foreign policy. It's true, foreign policy has not been uh, generally been the subject of the debates, or or people haven't really uh, talked about it that much. But if you, I think you can see that the um, that the speeches that they gave, people should read them. This, read the, all the speeches. There were very important things said. Some that we like, some we don't like, but. Uh, all of the speeches, Kasich uh, gave a, a very strong address, Cruz gave a strong address, 
and uh, the two um, uh, Secretary Clinton and uh, and Donald Trump and Vice President Biden. All of those speeches are important to read to see the detail of it. You, it's hard in a speech as people cheer and stuff to to really follow it carefully. But I do think that they, um, for the first time, maybe talked about Middle East policy in, in detail. Well, it'll be interesting to see. Middle East policy on the table when the two of them debate each other. That's true. Uh, without prepared remarks, or at least without teleprompters, uh, because you know how different both of them are without the teleprompters. Um, I don't know. I mean, I know it's only March, and you keep citing that you know there's still a lot of time left, etc. But uh, and if I could remind people also that we should focus on the Senate and House races as well. Those are very important. That's where local communities can have a greater impact. Uh, you know, presidential race will run its course, and it's very important who becomes president. It's very important what they believe, uh, even what they say now, though we know that what they say in, in, during the campaigns don't, doesn't necessarily translate into policy, or else we'd have 50, 60 American embassies in Jerusalem already. We would have many other things that they, they always promise. But I think people should also remember all the congressional races, to look at who's running, to support people, to get involved. And to, and and even more so now is to look at some of the issues. We have very vital issues. We talked about terrorism. We haven't talked about the latest developments regarding Iran and certainly regarding uh, Israel. That people not just get caught up in the you know in the excitement of the moment, which is the presidential race and uh, some of the personalities, but to look at the substance of issues that we confront today. Yeah, and by the way, for those who have over the last few days since Brussels, and I'm sure you've heard this because I've heard this, I don't know, a hundred times since Brussels, uh, you know, who, who think that you know terror attacks, God forbid they should happen around the world, could sway our election one way or the other. Do you realize there are over 160 terror attacks since the beginning of, 2015, since the beginning of 2016 on this globe? Over 160, what did I just say, 160, right? 160 terror attacks, uh, you know, and, and uh, not to minimize them and not to, you know, talk about how it, how, how it, it's possible for major incidents to sway things. We, I understand that. But people don't seem to care much, you know, even after Brussels. Well, why don't they look at the statistics for the convictions in the United States over the last year about the number of attacks that were planned and executed over the... Over the, just over the last year, year and a half, and those statistics speak very loudly for themselves. You don't need anything else to to um, to see w what the threats are, what the danger, and that these these have all become globalized. You know, we, we're seeing Iran now with the influx of money being able, perhaps, to augment their efforts in South America and around the world. These are are not long term dangers. These are immediate, and and the the fact that they are able to buy new weapons and perhaps uh, produce new weapons, that they, uh, Iran remains the major danger and threat. And unfortunately, we see efforts now to uh, lessen some of the sanctions. They're talking about removing some of the banking sanctions and their ability to deal in dollars, which is a huge thing, and especially will affect the European banks, which have held back because not sure about what the U.S. would do. And at the same time as the U.S. is introducing some new sanctions against those who help Hezbollah, we are seeing that they're they're talking about uh, reducing or or lightening some of the sanctions that affect uh, the trade. The Iranians have threatened to walk away, uh, and the likelihood is that we talked about this. That once they get the money, the the chance of them uh, keeping up with all with their commitments is minimal. And we see that they violate the agreements all the time. There's still no punishment for the missile launches for the 
other activities in which they they've engaged and the support for terrorism uh, around the world so the you know the, this is really the uh, 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 coming to fruition the fears that we all had and why i think the majority of the american people still today oppose the deal and are concerned about it yeah no question about it by the way did you see the uh, i don't know <coughs> excuse me did you see the 60 minutes piece on president macri of uh, argentina i did not but i do follow president macri very closely and it's a he, it's a remarkable change god willing it will continue uh, president obama met with him uh, this week he uh, he is, says that he will. He, he already abrogated this memo of understanding that Kushner, the former president, reached with Iran, uh, and has said that they will go with the investigation. The more important part is that the former chief of intelligence has returned. He, he, he had left the country and he came back, and he is spilling the beans and he's telling the truth. And he said that Nisman was murdered. He's put to rest any of the speculation wow. about uh, about what happened to him, and he has a lot more information about. Um, what uh, what the government of Kushner did, what the deals with Iran were, uh, and I'm sure this will be there will be a lot more disturbing information coming out. Wow, unbelievable! Uh, all right, tell us about uh, what's happening with Russia and Syria, uh, ISIS. Syria, Syria and ISIS are now at war, right? Essentially, they've been at war, right. uh, more or less, the whole time. <laughs> supposedly, <laughs> understood. Uh, and and the Russian element in terms of their involvement. Well, the Russians did draw down their presence there, but we have to remember they now have a, a they have a naval base, Latakia, in Tartus, and they have a and now an air force base. One of the developments that took place during the war, and so they have still a strong military presence. They still are flying missions in support of the attacks against ISIS and the attempts by the Syrian army to regain. Uh, certain territory from them. Uh, ISIS has lost about 15% of the territory they held and um, uh, have lost many fighters, many uh, people. And, you know, a lot of them have gone to Libya, where they've established a new base of operation in Seret on the coast of the Mediterranean, which is something that we will hear about a lot more, as I believe they will conduct terrorism from there and go into piracy, etc., from, from the site. So um, in Syria itself, we've seen a shift. There, there are talks that are uh, underway. Uh, Assad now, people are generally saying, will stay so that uh, Russia can claim the victory and say that, look, we stood by our, our friends. They are trying to gain entry into all the Sunni countries and to create a greater presence there. And unfortunately, the West is giving them more and more opportunities to exploit uh, all over the region. The... Um, uh, so there's supposedly a ceasefire that's, that is partially in effect, but uh, the fighting continues against uh, ISIS and against others, and fighting within the groups continues. Right. This strengthens Assad or not? Oh, yes, absolutely. Assad now looks like he'll be a survivor. How much he will have, he'll have a, a shrunken Alawite, Al, uh, Alawite state. Some call it a Wallistan, but this is one of the goals I think that the Russians had. He 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 will a significant part of Iraq, of Syria then will be either in Cantons will be a Kurdish area. There will be a, uh, areas uh, for Shiites, the others who who will be dominant. Whether there's a formal uh, setting up of boroughs of Cantons of some system, 
but it doesn't look like Syria will come together again as Syria. And you mentioned Iran and the update uh, regarding what's happening there. What can you tell us? Well, the situation in Iran, we still see that the executions are running at a at the highest level. That certainly the violations of human rights. We see that they're sending commandos and snipers to uh, um, Iraq and to Syria by their own admission. Um, the um, the, the uh, during the surge, they reached uh, I don't know twenty five thousand, perhaps uh, at, at twenty five hundred. Uh, uh, troops, some of them, they had a number killed, and they are withdrawing some of their troops as well. But they're sending Iraq advisors, as they call them. And this, they've created their first rapid reaction commando sniper unit. They had a ceremony and uh, marking the end of this two months of special training, which means that Iran's role is going to continue, that they're going to um, exercise the control. They're going to keep Assad in power. They're going to keep backing Hezbollah. Hezbollah is getting new weapons. Hamas has... Uh, has tried to reestablish its ties with Iran without great success, and now they're reaching out to Egypt. In fact, this week they removed the pictures of Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood signs from the streets in Gaza Hmm. because the Egyptians obviously uh, uh, confronted them about it when they came there, and they did not give in to to the demands. Some of the demands were opening the borders, and as you know, Egypt has been continuing to flood the tunnels and to take action against the the smuggling the Hamas is, is not weaker. The latest poll shows that they would win by 11 points in a showdown on Abbas, who has lost more and more support. But Hamas is, is uh, now trying to, to win back support from Iran, which was reduced. Hezbollah complains that the money from Iran is down because of the economic conditions, but we still see that they are shipping them weapons and building up their capacity. So Iran... The global terrorism network expands, continues in Africa, in South America, and elsewhere. It, it remains the most important of the challenges, I think, that we see. And you've got to look at the words of what um, the heads of, of the Quds forces are, are saying and how they're talking about now taking over Bahrain. If you remember when the Iraqis did it about um, Kuwait, they're saying the same thing. This is a province of ours. This is our territory. Um, when Khamenei gave his uh, uh, Nauruz, which is the Iranian New Year speech, it was viciously anti-American. And um, uh, the, now the head of the Navy says they're building a statue showing the American sailors in this humiliating posture. I mean, they're doing everything contrary to any commitment in the in the agreement, and we're seeing that these these violations, and yet no real consequence. Aside from now, the uh, idea that there'll be more uh, sanctions against individuals who help the missile program or help uh, Hezbollah. What will it take to get more, uh, you know, serious sanctions or a more serious attitude toward? Well, how about the fact that we just charged a consultant to the uh, Iranian UN mission and a whole team of people were having perpetrated this huge attack against America? It was a cyber attack against our banks, against the, the dam here in New York, and that could have had very grave consequences. They they were able to penetrate, unfortunately, very sensitive uh, areas. And uh, and it shows that they're at war with us, and they're fighting us on every, um, on every possible front. Uh, and, and they continue to make the statements. They continue to declare their, their uh, intentions. And still, we don't see... 
the kind of tough reaction by the international community that is really essential. Price of oil going up is going to put them in a better position, or it's irrelevant at this point? No, it, it is very relevant because they're starting to export the oil now. They're ramping up their uh, exports. They're, they've tried to reach a deal with Saudi Arabia. It's not going to happen. I don't believe Saudi Arabia is going to cut production uh, so that the likelihood is that the price of oil is not going to rise very sharply and, if anything, maybe decline again. Um, and for them, this is a major source of income. And the, the fact that when they went out of business, oil was 100 or $109, and now it's $40 and less is, is a huge difference for them. So they don't have the windfall, but, of course, they are exporting, and the money they get does not go to the people. It goes to the IRGC, which controls 30% of the economy. They're on Revolutionary Guard, and to uh, Khamenei, who controls a significant part of uh, of the economy. The people are complaining because they don't see any benefit yet from the money that is being released. The U.N. Human Rights Council approved a resolution to compile an updated list of all companies, Israeli and foreign, operating in any of the disputed territories, quote-unquote. How long has this been going on? This is an annual tradition? <laughs> yes, it's a, they, they pass uh, five or six annual resolutions. Israel is the only country that is a, a separate item, and um, they have a special rapporteur who was re a new one was appointed this week. If you remember, they have a history of having these hostile people serving as the special rapporteur, which means special reporter, whose job is to go into the territories and report on what's happening there. And they just chose a guy who's a professor, his name is Lynx, from Canada, as the special rapporteur. And he is as a long history of extremely public hostile comments about Israel. He even said 9-11 was because of global inequities and the Western nation's disregard for rule of law. And uh, and he was uh, the second candidate. The other one was even worse. But he has a long history and a record, and yet they appoint him to be the neutral observer, to be the person who uh, is supposed to uh, be able to give objective reports. I mean, there's no way this guy's even capable of doing that from all of the reports uh, about him. And then you have the body trying to uh, preparing a blacklist of settlement-related companies, those doing business there. Uh, the United States is fight, fighting this, and hopefully um, they will um, they, they will be able to stop it. It's certainly a discriminatory measure. Many other countries, as you know, have come out against BDS and these kind of boycotts. By the way, the governor of Colorado yesterday signed the law, and so did the government of Virginia adopted a law by vote of 86 to 5 in their General Assembly. The Senate passed it by voice vote. So now there are eight states, I think, that have had passed uh, anti-BDS and rejecting it as discriminatory, as bigotry, as anti-democratic, etc. Um, and, uh, by the way, the Human Rights Council, according to the testimony that was given there yesterday, no Israeli has victim of terror has been on the list, which they keep on their website, of all the victims of terror since September. Yeah. All of those who, who were knifed and killed, none of them are on there. And the child, of, the son of one of the victims, went and testified and said, where's my father? Why is he not on the list? And uh, they, you know, have... It, it's a clear reflection of, of the one-sided nature, the words, it was a demonstration outside by uh, Jewish communities and others against uh, the Human Rights Council, but this is the body that's charged with enforcing human rights. It's obsessed with Israel. They have a repertoire on, on Iran, but nothing serious comes out at a time when they're executing more people, violating more human rights, persecuting um, anybody who's critical of the government. 
uh, we see in Turkey the arrests, we see in other countries, and yet none of these rise to the committee, to the council's uh, attention or serious attention, and they're obsessed with Israel. Yeah. Meanwhile, after the Brussels attack in the airport and the subway station, uh, which group was inundated with dozens of requests for assistance in securing airports around the globe? And the answer, of course, the Israel Airports Authority. <laughs> Israeli airports and Israeli security firms and yeah. getting advice, and they've been giving it to to many people uh, till now. And it's quietly done. It's not something that necessarily is publicized. Yeah. But uh, they have been doing it. All right, Malcolm, enjoy your Shushan Purim. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and we'll speak again next week. Weekly update Friday, 7.40 Eastern Time here at JM and the AM, jmtheam.org, and of course on the NSN app.